0: Welcome back to the Interlude podcast where I share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Today, my guest is Jen Durbel. Jen was diagnosed with primary peritoneal cancer at the age of 44. She initially presented with three months of symptoms that were thought to be viral or the flu. She went to the doctor multiple times and ultimately was sent to the ER where she was found to have a collapsed lung and fluid in her lung. She was then sent home six days later with diagnosis of stage four primary peritoneal cancer and a chest tube. Today, she shares her story of receiving chemotherapy and subsequent treatment. Jen is also a special education instructional assistant. She is a mom of three daughters and a three-year-old granddaughter. She is also a carrier of a BRCA1 genetic mutation. She joins me today to share her story. Welcome. Thank you for joining me, and can you start by introducing yourself? Yes. Thank you for having me. My name is
1: Jen. Um, I am 45, just turned 45 years old. I am the mom of three girls, 24, 20, and 18, and I also have a four-year-old granddaughter, so we're all girls in our house. Um, all three of my children live away from home, with but they're close, so I see them often, In 2013, due to my sister's breast cancer diagnosis, I went through genetic counseling through Duke and was found to have the BRCA1 genetic mutation. So uh, pretty quickly had um, preventive procedures, did a preventive double mastectomy in October of 2013, followed by a preventive hysterectomy and oophorectomy in March of 2014. And I thought I pretty much had things handled pretty well. I was pretty proud of myself.
0: (laughs) And what happened after that point?
1: Um, Well, I went on HRT.
0: um, And can you tell people what HRT is if they don't know? So
1: hormone replacement therapy. And I was put on the Premarin pill. Um, Gosh, I don't remember the dosage. But it was a tapering dosage over five years. I was supposed to come off of it on year five. And you know, I was released to my primary care physician. So I really was not under the care of a a gynecologist at the time. They told me that was really unnecessary because there was nothing left to check. So I was super diligent about my yearly um, exams with my primary care physician, mostly because we got a discount on our insurance if I had a yearly exam. So I was super on time with that all the time. And I would always say, is there anything we need to do because of this bracket and they'd say, nope, you did everything you were supposed to do, you're good. So, you know, in that four years, never had a CA 125 run or anything. And then um, it was just, well, Thanksgiving 2017, I started not feeling well and I was concerned because Thanksgiving of course is huge deal at our house. And I was worried about not feeling well and I got through it okay. But then in December I started to not feel good Uh, Went to the urgent care right down the street.
0: What kind of symptoms? When you say you weren't feeling well, what kind of symptoms were you having?
1: I was really tired.
0: Um, A lot of night sweats, which we
1: attributed to coming off of that tapering uh, HRT medication. We thought the menopause was really starting to kick my butt a little bit. Um, Really tired. Would go to bed super early and drag myself out of bed in the morning and the sweating and I had some low grade fever. So I went to the urgent care nearby and they said, um, had uh, pneumonia and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. That's, that's a pretty big illness. I can, I can understand that. And they did offer me a test X-ray that day. And I said, well, it wasn't on site. I would have had to go elsewhere and have it done. And I had already worked all day. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Totally should have had that test x-ray. And I said, um, well, would it change how you treat me? And she said, nope, it would just be for a good um, thing to have for a follow-up. And I said, nah, I'll pass on that. Just give me the antibiotic and I'll go home. So long story short, um, between December 7th and diagnosis day, which was March 21st, I had went to the doctor six times because I just felt like I couldn't shake this flu. Um, I, several antibiotics, did Tamiflu one round, um, and then they said they thought I had acquired some adult asthma. We just could not figure out what was wrong, and then um, I worked March 21st and went left half a day and went to the doctor and got there and said we need to figure this out i can't even walk across the classroom i am out of breath i feel like i'm suffocating just slowly and so we went for a chest x-ray and that's where the whole ball just started rolling like crazy
0: what did the chest x-ray show
1: well um the radiologist came in and said have you had a chest surgery and i said yes i had a double mastectomy in 2013 And she said, no, a lung surgery, because something's very wrong. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So that was total panic. Um, I paced the radiologist's office for about 20 minutes. Um, My primary care physician called me while I was at the radiologist's office and said, there's fluid on your lung, and you need to go right to the emergency room. We need to find out where this fluid is coming from and get it off. So, of course, Mom panic set in. I have to get my daughter from school and I can't go to the hospital without a bag and totally panicked. But after we figured all out all that, um, I got to the hospital, had an EKG immediately because my heart rate was high, my blood pressure was high. Spent about six hours in the ER, had um, an x ray. They found seven liters of fluid um, in my portal space on the uh, right side, and my heart had moved out of place because there was so much fluid it was all pushing everything over so i had a thoracentesis that evening um, but they said they couldn't drain all the fluid in one time so they admitted me for the night so at this point i'm still thinking flu i'm still thinking pneumonia flu i felt much better because they had gotten so much fluid off my lung that i felt like i could breathe again besides my youngest daughter nobody really knew i was in the hospital because i thought i'll be in and out in no time i don't need to bother anybody and um did another thoracentesis in the night did another one the next morning and i thought i was going to get to go home that day and then they started coming in talking about cytology and they told me that it was um, protocol that they sent all fluid for cytology so I wasn't too worried, and then just the random doctors started coming in and started talking about cancer and started talking about, we can't do any more um, thoracentesis until we rule out cancer, and I was irritated and angry, and why, why would you people tell me this? Why? Well, I don't even, I remember telling one doctor, I don't even know who you are. I've never seen you before, I don't know who you are. I don't really trust what you're telling me. I just didn't want to believe it and didn't like the fact that these strange people were coming in and I used to say, um, I told my mom, I said, they're all being mean to me. <laughs> and indeed they weren't being mean to me, they were just telling me things I didn't want to know.
0: <laughs> and you had had the ophorectomy, you know, to prevent this from happening. So what is going through your mind when they're saying cancer, when you thought you were in the clear?
1: Well, you know, my boyfriend of many years said that, um, he said, yeah, it's, they, they saw you coming. They know you're, you have good health insurance and you're a young, healthy person. They're just running up your bills. So that's, (laughs) that's what I was hoping. I know, right. That's what I was hoping, um, I just thought they were wrong. I just thought they were wrong, wrong, wrong. And
0: And so, what happened next?
1: So after that, the um, thoracic surgeon. You know, we were concerned about this cancer, but we were also concerned that my lung was collapsed, and we needed to fix that first. So the thoracic surgeon came in and said, "We're going to do a tele procedure." We're gonna put in a chest tube. We're gonna do all this stuff. And of course my brain is still on cancer, but he wants me to focus on the fact that we need to fix your lungs before we do anything. So I was getting ready for the TELC procedure and he came back in and stood in the doorway and said, you have cancer. And I said, what kind and where is it coming from? And he said, we don't know, we need to run more tests. And I said, what are the odds of me coming out of this okay? And he said, not zero, but not good. And I and he explained to me that since I had so much fluid that I was in end stage. And he said, we don't know what kind of cancer it is but it's definitely um, stage four. And again, I was just completely, completely blindsided and so confused and had so many questions. But again, we needed to fix that long before we did anything.
0: How do you begin to process all of this, right? So we as doctors, we give you this news all the time. And then how do you process, how do you make any sense of that in that moment?
1: Well, you know, in that moment, I was angry and mad. And I had a billion questions, but I didn't know what those questions were yet. So people would come in and say, do you have any questions? And I'd say, yes, I have a million, but I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like all these strangers coming in, giving me all this bad news, one after another, after another, I was kind of waiting for that person to come in and just sit there. And, you know, I don't know whose job that would be. Is that a social worker? Is that a counselor? Is that a volunteer? Mm -hmm. You know, who gets that responsibility? I don't, I don't know. But definitely, there needs to be some follow up as far as when someone gets that kind of note, kind of information. Someone needs to be behind those people saying, "I'll take care of her from here."
0: <laughs> no, it's true, right? Because in the, the hospital, awesome. yeah, in the hospital, there's a ton of people involved, and you need the captain of the ship who's going to take take yeah, over for sure. Yep. Yeah. So, so did I you did, fi- did you well, fix so- the lung?
1: They did. Um, we went and had the TELF procedure. Um, it went well, and they had a, they did a, put a port in while they were in there because we knew I was going to have to have some sort of chemo. And when I woke up, they had more information for me. They said that they were going to diagnose it as peritoneal cancer because it was definitely a gynecological cancer of some sort, but since I really didn't have anything left in that area, they were just going to call it peritoneal um, and that it was stage four and again the lung was taking precedence i woke up with i don't even remember what it was called some sort of little box i called it my beehive because it buzzed all the time um, i had to walk around with it because the the hose led from my my lung to the the little beehive machine um, and they told me i was going to have to go home with that and that i'd probably have the chest tube for the rest of my life and i was not happy about that um, I kept telling him, no, I won't. <laughs> I will not have this the rest of my life. I absolutely will not. And they kept saying, do you want to go home with the chest tube or do you want to stay until it? we think it can come out? And I said, I want to stay here in the hospital until it can come out because I don't want to be responsible for this little beehive thing going on. Um, and I, I know it's going to come out. And they overrode my decision and said, nope, you're going home with it because it's not coming out. And I was in the hospital six days, so it was it was a long time of going back and forth. And so I came home with a chest tube and a case of, I don't even remember what they were called, but little bottles that I can empty, and a home health nurse came to show me how to, how to change it and how to empty it and how to drain it every day. And I had that chest tube for 17 days, and then it came out, like I said, it was going <laughs> to.
0: Good for you.
1: I was so happy. It was the best day ever.
0: Yeah, I mean, who wants anything tethered to you at all times? Oh
1: no, I was so worried about it catching on something. Of course. Oh.
0: Did you start chemotherapy?
1: So I was diagnosed March 23rd, and I had my first chemo, uh, carboplatin, Avastin, on April 9th. And- And to me, that felt like a lifetime because the minute I got released from the hospital, I wanted chemo that minute. I wanted to get this chemo in my body immediately to start killing us. I could not wait. Um, Now that I talked to other people, I realized that was a pretty quick turnaround. The 23rd, I didn't even get out of the hospital until the 29th. So it was a pretty fast turnaround. But to me, it felt like forever. So I was very anxious to get started on chemo. very happy to show up that day and get it going on.
0: And how was the treatment side effects? How'd you tolerate it?
1: You know, it wasn't awful. Um, the steroids kept me feeling pretty good the first three days after chemo. And then about day four, I woke up and said, Oh no, I went back to bed and that's, I had five rounds of carboplatin is after chemo. And then I hit a wall for about three or four days. And then I slowly got back together. And of course, when I was starting to feel really good was when you're ready for chemo again <laughs> in three weeks. Platinum resistant after five rounds. So we stopped after five rounds. But, um, and I was actually really disappointed when the doctor said I became platinum resistant, not because, oh my gosh, now what are we gonna do? But because I really enjoyed um you know, the, the infusion lounge, the chemo nurses were amazing and helpful and caring and sweet. And I just really liked being around people that were going through the same thing I was.
0: I really enjoyed that. Did you make friends in the infusion suite, people that you could turn to? Definitely.
1: Um, you know, the first time I went before I started chemo, I we they gave us a tour of the infusion lounge and People are waving at you and smiling at you when you walk by, and I'm thinking, these people have cancer, and they're taking the time to say hi to me as I walk through. I mean, good, you go to Target, and people are grumpy and angry and don't want to wait in line, and and there's nothing wrong with those people. And here you go to the infusion lounge, and these people have cancer, and they're taking the time to be kind to you. I was like, you know what? These are my people. <laughs>
0: That's so true. I think, you know, someone makes a comment of it's the club that you don't want to be part of, but it's the Absolutely. nicest members. Oh my
1: gosh, totally agree with that.
0: So for those who are not familiar, platinum resistant means that your body has stopped responding to platinum-based chemotherapy. Yes. And yep. what did you switch to after that?
1: So um, my senior gynecological oncologist is who I sought to get that news. And i really was nervous because i really saw the worry in his face when he told me that i became platinum resistant and he said we're going to put our heads together and we're going to figure out a new treatment plan for you and i thought oh man that's that's scary and so they put me on limparza i started limparza august 1st and they weren't really sure what to expect um, but it has it's really been my miracle drug it's it's been excellent. Um, I started at August 1st. I had my first scan on Halloween and it showed great improvement. Um, I had my second scan the end of January and it was an almost clear scan. That's so,
0: wonderful.
1: And my next scan is May 1st. I just scheduled it yesterday. So I've got the scans going right now. I'm a little concerned, a little nervous. Um, but, it's just part of, part of the process.
0: And, again, for those people who are not familiar lymparza is a class of medications called PARP inhibitors that are very active in women who have BRCA mutations. So that's amazing. You're having such a wonderful response to it. And We're going to all cross our fingers yes, that yes. May 1st is a good day.
1: Yes, I hope so. I get results May 6th, so I'll definitely let you know.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to, again, cross all our fingers. So now lymparza is an oral pill. It is. Mm-hmm. What's your experience of, you know, going through chemo- of going through chemotherapy with the IV and then kind of transitioning to the oral?
1: Well, you know, the oral, it's kind of all on me. You know, I'm, I'm responsible for taking it um, in the morning and at night. I'm responsible for taking it 12 hours apart like I should. It's kind of in my lap. It's my responsibility to keep. It. And, of course, I want to live and want to beat this. So, of course, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. Um, I, when I first started taking it, I had a little bit of nausea. Um, AstraZeneca has been amazing. They had a nurse call me every week when I first started taking it, ask, answering any questions. Uh, I told them I had a little bit of nausea. So they said, you know, take it with some toast or some crackers or something. And that totally fixed that. Um, FedEx brings it right to the house. So it's, it's been fairly easy. Um, Fatigue, you know, a little bit, but I don't know if that's, you know, disease-related or medication-related or or just that I'm a 45-year-old woman. (laughs) don't know.
0: And are you working throughout this? So um,
1: upon diagnosis, I cashed in all my safe time. I had accrued over 11 years of teaching, and that took me until about November. So I went back to work, in November and my oncologist signed off for me to go back one day the first week, two days the second week, three days the third week, four days the fourth week. And that brought us into Christmas vacation. So I have been back at work four days a week since January. Um, I take Wednesdays off, so I only work two days at a Mm -hmm. time. So if I'm really tired, I only have two days and then I can have a day to sleep. Um, I also work at a year round school, so I only have nine weeks at a time and then we have three weeks off. Okay. So this last stretch was a nine week stretch and about week seven, I was like,
0: come on week nine. <laughs> because I am... you work with kids and it's exhausting. How old are the kids?
1: So it's special education classroom. So it's, um, K five, it's okay. all through, it's all ages, um, but my patience for them is never-ending. My patience for adults, not so much never-ending. But <laughs> kids, it's, they're just so hilarious and so fun and so awesome. That
0: Tell me about how having cancer affected your relationship with your children, with your granddaughter. Well, you know,
1: sitting there in that hospital room, you know, trying to figure out a way to tell them was probably one of the hardest things about this whole journey. And I called my, my younger two and said, you know, I've, I've had some flu symptoms, I'm in the hospital, why don't you come up and see me? And they were like, okay, we'll come up tonight, no problem. Called my oldest and told her that and she said, stop the BS mom, what's going on? And you know, she's the oldest, she knows. So I had to tell her over the phone because she wouldn't let up. She knew something was wrong. Um, We've always been pretty close. I was a single mom for, for most of their childhood. So we've always been a pretty tight knit four of us group. And so it really hasn't changed too much. Um, when I was diagnosed, I was told it was you know stage four and was told it was end stage, but I really didn't tell the kids that I told them that I've got cancer, but treatments out there are remarkable and they're making strides every day. I knew I had the BRCA mutation. That's why I did the preventive surgeries. And I knew this was always a possibility. So I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be here for a long time. And I look back now and I think, Ooh, that was risky (laughs) to tell them because I didn't know that I was going to be okay. then, And I still don't know that I'm going to be okay now, but I just felt that it wasn't my time. I was going to be here for, for a lot longer. And I didn't want to scare them. They're so young and they're so amazing and they're so independent and they're so strong, but they're still so young. And I didn't, my youngest was a senior at the time and getting ready to go off to college. And I was so afraid that she was going to be afraid to leave and not go and want to stay home. And so I just had to put on a really, really, really brave face and tell them that this was going to be okay. This is going to be okay.
0: How did they take the news? Um,
1: They were upset, of course, but I planned it so when they got to the hospital, um, I had my youngest, I had her best friend come and then the room was full of people. There were about eight or nine people there. It was the closest friends. It was just our whole really tight-knit group of people were there. And I felt amazing because I had finally got all this fluid off my lung and I wasn't hooked up to any... IVs or anything. In fact, I was feeling so good that I was walking down the hall and I saw, looked in on some guy in his hospital room and his water was empty and his pitcher was knocked over. And I was like, oh, I'll get that for you. So I was just wandering around the hospital, going to the gift shop. I felt amazing. I felt great. So when they got there, I was waiting for them in the lobby because I felt excellent. So I think that really helped. I wasn't in bed hooked up to anything groggy. I was awake and raring to go. And I think that really helped a lot.
0: So it sounds like you have a, you know, big community supporting you. How do you communicate updates with everyone, right? Do you like, cause people must text and call and do you yeah. communicate with them individually? Like, what do you do?
1: Well, I immediately, the second day in the hospital, I started a caring bridge page because I thought everybody's going to ask questions and i don't want people getting their information secondhand because things don't always communicate correctly so i started a caring bridge page and i updated that almost daily in the beginning because so much was going on so much was happening so fast and now that um i'm considered stable which i love that word i will take it all day um, i only update every couple weeks because there's really not anything new happening I just keep I just let people know that I'm still stable, I'm still good and that I'm still on the medicine, it's still working for me and I'm grateful for everybody's support and cheerleading. It's it's been quite a process.
0: Is there anything that surprised you, you know, during chemo going through this journey?
1: Oh, I if you would have told first of all the fact that I even have this is
0: unbelievable i
1: still sometimes don't believe that it's actually happening um the community support people i didn't even know coming out of the woodwork churches local churches that i live near that i don't even belong to um showing support and sending food and flowers and and to be honest i if you would have said that this was going to happen to me i would have told you i'll never get through that and here we are and still going and I'm back work, which sometimes amazes me. And I'm trying to do the gym a couple times a week. I get really tired real quick, but I just surprised that I can even, that I've even gotten this far.
0: The people that kind of showed up out of the woodwork, what did you think about that?
1: It's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's, it's a very nice thing. I live in a really a rural community. So it's, it's a small community, but the school community is amazing. And I've, been there 11 years and you get to know people and parents and you don't realize the relationships you've made until something like this happens. You don't realize that, hey, these people from three or four years ago, remember me. You don't even think about things like that. So it's, it's been awesome. And it's been, um, it's been great. And it's, I'm going on my 13th month after diagnosis and people are still there and still supportive and still reaching out and still calling and sending cards. And it's, it's very humbling experience.
0: It's nice when the community rallies behind you and you feel that support and that love. How did you tell your students and the school and the parents what was happening?
1: Well, I sent an email Well, my principal is super, super, super supportive. And the day I was diagnosed, she came up to the hospital and um, she said, you know, what do you want me to tell the staff? And I said, let me think about that. And so I wrote a pretty quick, short and sweet email um, saying that uh, this is what I've been diagnosed with. Don't really know where the future is headed. Um, Have a lot of Things to sort out. I would appreciate their support, their prayers, um, good thoughts, well wishes, whatever they had to give, and that I would, I was going to fight hard and hope to be back. And she sent that email out um, just so the staff could know. And then she went ahead and handled the parents in the classroom for me, sent a letter out, and um, and and the kids, of course, were great, and it was you know, March. So it was towards the end of the year. So I really missed them because I had been with them since since we're at all, our year round school. I had been with them since July of the year before. So that's a long time to love on some little ones and not get to see them today, So
0: of course. And but it's good to be back.
1: Oh, it's amazing. You know, and when I went back, the first thing I said was it is so good to feel useful again. Being home and when I was on chemo, it was different. I didn't feel good. I needed to rest, um, I slept a lot, and on the days I did feel good, I was just happy to be up, just happy to be out of bed. And then when I started the Lymparza, um, we didn't know what to expect as far as side effects went, but as the time went on, and as I realized I was going to tolerate this really well, I started getting antsy, and I started getting bored, and I started be you know, when you're home too much, you think, think mm-hmm. a little bit in your home. And I really, really needed to busy myself with something. And when I went back to work, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I need. I need to be busy. I need to feel useful. And it was nice.
0: What advice do you have for women who are kind of at that same stage who are not working or struggling with not going to work with kind of their mind wandering when they're at home?
1: You know, I would say definitely get a hobby. Um, I, t- I took up crocheting and it took me several months, several, several, several skeins of yarn to realize that this probably is not my gift. I really need to go back to work.
0: Yeah, um, I think if I took up crocheting, it would just be a ball of yarn yeah, in a closet so somewhere.
1: I just need to go back to work and give this up. Um, but, you know, there are days, too, where I think... And that's kind of I'm at this point right now where um, I joined the gym a couple, I guess, about two months ago. And I said to the instructor, I wanted to join his uh, sit fit class. And it's a lot of rehab patients in this class where you just sit and do upper body strength. And he said, why do you want to join this class? And I said, well, you know, technically I have terminal cancer, um, but I am back at work and I'm slowly trying to get back to a little bit of normalcy. And he said, "Why in the world are you working? Why aren't you enjoying life and jumping out of airplanes and going to Hawaii?" And I thought, "Man, I don't know why. Why am I not doing that?" So I, I struggle with that right now. I'm, you know, of course, Hawaii and jumping out of airplanes takes money, right? So, but I am kind of at that point of, "Gosh, if this really is my last time on Earth, am I doing what I what I want to be doing?" And usually the answer comes back to, yeah, because if I, if I was, I'd just be sitting at home worrying. So, but it, so that's, uh, it's hard. It's a hard, I can see how everybody's decision would be different.
0: That is definitely something to struggle with. And and kind of on that note, you know, you don't look like someone who has terminal cancer. I'm sure you've heard that before. (laughs) And that's a very cliche thing to say, but because you've heard that, how do you deal with that? What do you respond to people?
1: You know, that's hard. Um, a lot of people, uh, now that I'm back at work, I hear someone introduced me to somebody the other day, and they're like, hey, this is Den. She had cancer, but she's in remission. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, I'm not. I, that would be amazing. And I hope I, you can go ahead and keep that positive thought out there in the universe because I hope to say that someday but I'm, I'm not in remission. I'm considered stable, which is, I'll take it. It's great news. Um, but people do think that I am cancer free now and everything's fine and my hair's coming back. So I'm healthy and, and, you know, I, I like people to think that of me because if that's what they think, then maybe that's what we'll become.
0: <laughs> Positive attitude. Totally yeah. important. And it, I think that you know, a lot of people kind of think of cancer as what their grandmother had, you know, and it 20 years ago and they don't know that people yes. are living normal lives with stage four cancer.
1: Yes. And that's you know, I've joined a ton of online support groups. I just read sometimes too much and gosh, there are people out there that have had, you know, terminal cancer for ten, fifteen years. And I want to be that person. I want to be here that long. Um, and my oncologist last time, uh, a month ago, I was telling her I was a little disappointed in the resources that were available to me. Um, you know, there's cancer survivorship programs that I'm ineligible for because I'm a terminal patient, and there's certain things that um, that you know, there's not programs for that person that's living with this. And she said she agreed and she said um, that now that there's so many options for ovarian cancer women, that they're living longer and longer with a terminal illness, that the community is struggling on how to help these people. And I completely agree with that. And I definitely would like to change that somehow. I don't really know where to start, but um, I think that's definitely something that we need in the community. there, we're going to be here for a while. There's so many, so much great research happening that terminal patients that used to only live, you know, six months to a year are here for much longer. And there needs to be some, some more support groups or some more something. I don't really know what it is. I'm hoping to figure it out.
0: <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. We don't have enough resources. And I think in general compared with breast cancer, and I've had my own patients tell me this, there's not enough for patients with gynecologic cancers. Mm -hmm. They sometimes feel a little bit marginalized.
1: Yes, I
0: agree with that. And what has been your experience with the online support groups?
1: Well, they're great. Um, And, you know, what's nice is that everybody has a a hopeful story. And the people that don't have a hopeful story – are very kind and are telling you, giving you information that you can use. So yes, I'm in a bad spot. This didn't work for me. This didn't work for me. This didn't work for me. So you're getting information from those people and they're not in a great, a great place, but yet they're still reaching out to people, trying to help and give as much information as possible. And I think that's really all we are all looking for is information. We just can't know enough. Um, And, you know, there's people out there that, that are hopeful and that have stories of survival. And that you can, there's a couple ladies on there that has been living with terminal cancer for 12 years. And we all gravitate to that one person. And we just want to talk to that person. And we want to... Listen to their, their advice and their hope and their faith and everything that they have, because we need that right now.
0: Yeah, that, yeah. You want to be that person. That gives that in 10 years, yes, mm-hmm. for sure. Any advice that you would have for someone who's diagnosed with stage 4 cancer? Because I think it is very different than an early stage cancer, right? There's not only treatment, but wrapping your mind around the fact that it is terminal.
1: Yes. Gosh, you know, don't give up hope because there's so much research going on every single day. And they're they're making strides. And um, my daughter is majoring in biology and her boyfriend is majoring in genetics. So we just got to wait four more years till they graduate and they're going to save the world is what I say. But there's just don't give up hope because there's so much out there. And the doctors need to give you all this information that is hurtful, you know, and it's, and it's scary, but they have to give it to you because that's their job. So you need to go out and you need to find that source of hope. If you're not getting it from your oncologist or the social worker or something, it's up to you to go find it. You need to find that hope and you need to grab onto
0: it and hold onto it and use it. Anything else that you want to share?
1: I just, if you know somebody with cancer, just check up on them and send them a note because it it means the world. And if you do have cancer, then there's so many people in your position out there that would just love to talk to you and give you hope and give you encouragement. Don't be afraid to reach out because there's a lot of people that will, will help you get through.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really wonderful to speak with you and I think... You're just, I mean, you're so inspiring, and I think a lot of women are going to get a lot from this conversation. Well, thank you so much. This is an awesome program. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you continue to tune in every week as I share the stories of these incredible women who have been affected by cancer in some way. For more cancer news, as well as podcast news and updates, please follow me at Twitter at Dr. DePlinsky and on Instagram at Dr. DePlinsky as well. If you are loving the show, and I hope you are, please take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, as that is the best way for me to grow the show and bring it to more listeners, which is really my goal. I hope you guys have a great weekend, and I will see you all next week.